Well, you probably agree with me. I, I love, I love America. I, uh, I love its people that are native to the land and, and most uh, of all, the, and, and most of the people in America are gathered from all over the earth, like our family a long time ago. I love to trace the providence of God and the blessing of God in America's history. And I uh, hope that you've been able to do that. I, lo- I love America's religious freedom and uh, privileges that we have and freedoms that we have. I love its vast and variegated landscape. I love to visit beautiful places in, in America and from sea to shining sea. I, I love America. I, I think maybe Lois, you and I are the only ones in the building who actually named a child America. So that's how much we love America. Our ho- when we, we had eight kids, and they were all really good, but they got better and better as they came along. And then when we got to the perfect one, then we named her Hope America. Hope America. She's the only one present. I think Hannah's in the nursery today, so that's... Uh, if she, hopefully Hannah didn't hear that one today. So, but we love America. America's beautiful. Amen? You love America? Is it just me? Yeah. I, I love America. America's beautiful. And America is blessed. But America is in serious trouble. America is in serious trouble. I recently heard someone say, I get tired of hearing preachers with their doom and gloom and all that. And they need to stop because they're scaring the children. Well, I get that. I understand saying that. You know, who, who should go scare the children? But like, these children have to be raised in a nation. And, uh, they, and so we care about those children. And so we do have to say the truth. And we do have to have a prophetic voice. And we do have to be honest about the things that our children and their children are going to face in America. So if you study the scriptures carefully, like for instance, the scriptures, the one chapter of the Bible, if you were to take Deuteronomy chapter 28, and if you remember this, in Deuteronomy 28, what you have is you have a beautiful promise to God's people, written to Israel, to God's people, about what will happen in their nation if they keep the law of God. And then the second part of Deuteronomy 28 is chilling, it's frightening, it's about what will happen to that nation if they don't keep the law of God. And then all throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament prophets, what you'll notice is that over and over again, the scriptures talk about what happens when a nation is no, no longer has God's blessing. And, and okay, so I want to do this real quickly because I want to go to a passage of scripture to talk about what should God's people do when their nation is in trouble, like our nation is in trouble. But first, I want you to just notice a few things that are true about many nations that are under the judgment of God. Eight things that are true about nations under God's judgment. And I'll do this quickly. We can make a whole message or a whole series of this. I'll do this very quickly. Passages of Scripture are included here for you to write them down and go back and study them later. But the first thing that, one of the first things that I know is I just put eight of them down, and you could have put many more. But here's one example. These are just come out of my heart from the study of Scripture in the past when I've noticed things the Bible says are true when a nation is under God's judgment. And one of them, in Isaiah chapter 3, it says, it'll be hard to find real statesmen and women. It'll be hard to find real godly leaders. Uh, that's what happens as Scriptures say that. Godly statesmen-like leaders will be rare in a nation, in a community, even in religious groups. And that's what it says in Isaiah chapter 3. It frightens me to notice how true that is in America. Second, children, women, and the weak will not be safe. 
Children, women, and the weak will not be safe. You know, in the Old Testament, we would read about child sacrifice. And in America, for years now, we've had our own version of a, of a money-making industry that is really nothing other than child sacrifice and the abortion industry in America. And people have gone now. Remember last year, somebody went and took videos of people that were literally sipping wine, eating salad, and, big, and, and talking over the sale of the body parts of preborn little tiny infants are not safe in our nation. That's happening in America. And then they, they were sued over that. The people who made the video were sued. This is in America. Children, women, and the weak are not safe in a nation that's under God's judgment. Few young people will follow God. If you read the chilling account of Ezekiel 14... It gives just a kind of a chilling, kind of a threefold teaching about how rare it will be in a nation that's under God's judgment for young people to really serve the Lord. And, and don't be in despair here, but let's be sober about this. This is true. Many young people walk away from the Lord. Few people will, uh, people will demand their own way, and then they'll get their own way, and then they'll live in bondage to it. God, one of the things that's um, an evidence of God's judgment all throughout the Bible is God gives people what they ask for, in their flesh and their sinful desires. He gives them what they ask for, and then they live in bondage to what they demanded, right? And that's Romans chapter 1 is really clear about that. Really, uh, sexual perversions will be accepted, and that's true in America today. Religious hypocrisy deceives people, and then true Christians face persecution. I put Revelation 17, and here's why. Revelation 17 is at the end of the Bible, right? Revelation 17 is a description of what's going on in the tribulation. In the tribulation, you have this Babylonian... Remember, we just studied this. You have this Babylonian world system, this godless, demonic world system. And you have a, you have a, you have a, a political arm, and then you have a military arm, right? And you have a religious arm. And the point is that it's only in the very end when the political military machine turns against the false religion and wipes it out. In other words, false religion is going to be with us until the very end, and then the secularists and the false religions are going to persecute the true people of God. It has always been that way, and it will always be that way. And in America, what you see happening now that you really haven't seen so much before in my lifetime is now you can see that there are groups, there are powerful groups that are moving toward removing religious freedom. False religion taking away the freedom that we have to practice true religion. We'll talk a bit about that more. Here's a seventh thing. They'll be vulnerable to their enemies. And what do you see in America today? But people are coming in now and they're bringing the war to our streets, right? You can't, you can't send a child off to a little... You know, you ought to be able to dress your little girl up on the first day of school and give her a little lunchbox and send her off to her little neighborhood school and know that she's going to be safe, right? You ought to know that she's going to be safe. You ought to know that those little kids should be able to go out there on the playground and have a happy day and have their lunch and pledge their allegiance to the flag and come home to cookies and be safe. But not in America today. They might get shot at school. You, you ought to be able to go to the mall and walk through the mall and enjoy making a few purchases and talking with some friends and spending some time with the family and not wonder if someone's going to cut you or someone's going to shoot you or something's going to, you ought to be able to run a race or go to a public event and not worry if something's going to explode. You ought to be able to fly in an airplane and not worry about whether the person next to you is going to slit your throat or hijack the airplane. In America, the, the, you know, in America, you see what happens in nations like in Deuteronomy 28. God says, if you don't keep my law more and more, I will give you over to your enemies. And the enemies aren't godly people, but God in his providence is allowing the enemy to come in. Do you see that in America today? 
And then there's another thing, and this is encouraging, and God will preserve within it a faithful remnant. By the way, back on the one that I talked about there, about children, that very few young people will serve the Lord, and it just over and over it talks about how uncommon it will be when a nation is under God's judgment that young people will serve the Lord. But then the very end, it gives this little tiny ray of hope, and it says, but God will have a remnant. And that's true. God will always preserve a faithful remnant. What is that remnant? It's a little piece, a little, little group. And, the, and this would just, the way that we would describe this, are people that are genuinely saved, all of them are part of this like little minority group of people who still have the life of God in them, and they love the things of God, and they believe the Word of God, and they're going to they're gonna be faithful even if they die. These are just some things that I noticed in the Bible, that the Bible says will happen when nations are under God's judgment. And, and you can't avoid recognizing that, let's just be honest, based on what the Bible says, you, can't, you, can make, you cannot successfully argue that America is not under the judgment of God right now because we've covenantally turned away from the law of God in the highest courts of our land, have ruled against the law of God. And so it, deliberating bodies that have been elected by the people, celebrated by the people, have turned away from God. We're in a mess. We're in trouble. America is beautiful. America is blessed. But America is in trouble. And understand this whole thing about, you know, when we, when we think a little bit about um, uh, what the Bible says about a faithful remnant, a faithful people. This is what we want to believe that we are, right? This is, what I, this is what I hope that you are, that we're a part of those who will still be faithful to God, even when the nation around us isn't faithful to God anymore. The Bible says in, in Ephesians 3, at the end of one of Paul's prayers, his second prayer in Ephesians, which I love so much, in Ephesians 3, 21, it, it says this, and, and you, you want to read it, that there will be glory in the church through Christ Jesus to all generations. And that's really hopeful because... I have children, we have, Lois and I have now almost, in November, we'll have, Lord willing, we'll have eight grandchildren, right? And you have children, and you have grandchildren, and others, kids on your block. You think, man, I hope they live in a, in a livable America. And, 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 but yet, whatever happens to our nation is going to be possible for them to be faithful to God, because the Bible says there will be faithfulness to God in every generation, glory in the church through Christ Jesus. They'll be troubled. But, this is, but the thing of it is, those of us who are like in this remnant, those of us who are tr- truly know the Lord, we have the Holy Spirit living in us, we love the Bible, we love what's true and right, and we know what's true and right. Here's one of the things that's going to mark us. And this is going to be interesting. You ask yourself, is this true about me? You, you grieved about the right things. In Ezekiel, there's a passage that, that, that says, you know, go and mark those who are grieved. And the rest of the people, they're going to have judgment. But the ones that are grieved that are grieved at the right time, put a mark on them. Would you have that mark of grief on you? I notice this. There are people that are unconcerned about what's happening in America today, and they say they're Christians. And they're just kind of like, they're not concerned. They don't seem to care. Do you see what's happening in America today? Do you see what's happening in the world today? Does it not trouble you? Does it not grieve you? It ought to. Now, Daniel is one of these people that was a part of a godly remnant in a pagan culture among God's people who are in captivity in Babylon, remember, in this pagan, in, in this pagan culture. And, and Daniel, uh, in, in Daniel chapter 9, there's a prayer that's recorded. This is where we kind of want to go you know, here uh, today. When we ask the question, you know, what should God's people do then since we are in trouble? And since our nation looks for all the world like it's under the judgment of God, what should God's people do? 
And that's what I want to, and to, to answer that question, I want to go to Daniel chapter 9 and say, well, let's just do what Daniel did, right? Would that be a good idea? And say, look what Daniel did. Let's do what Daniel did. And in Daniel chapter 9 is a record of a prayer and a prophecy. It was an amazing prophecy, you know, the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel, which is still being fulfilled. One of the most important and the most fascinating prophecies in all the Bible is in Daniel chapter 9. And it's preceded by one of the most beautiful and expressive and powerful prayers in the Bible. Daniel's prayer takes place shortly after the events of Belshazzar's feast in in Daniel uh, uh, 5.31. He had two visions and, and interpreted the handwriting on the wall in the banquet hall. And these visions talked about the future and about judgment, and they troubled Daniel. Daniel, who was a very godly man, who had his confidence in God, yet he was very, very troubled. And what happened was this drove Daniel to his knees in prayer. It drove him to study the Word of God. This is what Christian people should do, right? When we're troubled, we should have a a realistic assessment of what's happening around us, and it should trouble us, and that should drive us to our knees, and that should push us into the Scriptures. And this happened in Daniel's life all the time. Just a quick Passover. When When you watch the life of Daniel, you know, early on there was the trouble that they got themselves into, right? In Daniel chapter 2. And there's a prayer meeting that they call together in Daniel chapter 2, 17 and 18. And remember the, the incident with Daniel and the lions? And they said, if any, they set him up. If anybody prays, you know, we're going to execute him by being torn by the lions. And Daniel goes to his room, right? And like he always does, and he prays three times a day facing Jerusalem. Daniel chapter 6 and verse 10. Tremendous passage and it's inspiring. If you're a young person and you want a model of hero to follow, read the book of Daniel. And be a Daniel, right? Be a male or female version of Daniel. Be a faithful, God-fearing, praying young person. And this is what Daniel did. When Daniel got in trouble, when he saw trouble, the first thing he did was he did not exercise his political clout, and he had considerable political clout. The first thing Daniel did was not go and appeal to the king. The first thing Daniel did was Daniel got on his face before God and prayed. He called out to God, believing his prayers really mattered. And he prayed frequently, and he prayed fervently, and he prayed faithfully. And this is what you have in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 3. Daniel notices when all these problems are happening, these troubles, and his people are being troubled, and there's trouble in Babylon, and there's changing of leadership, and they're all godless leaders. None of them are godly leaders. They're all godless leaders. They're all God-hating, false religion, godless leaders, all of them. And Daniel is operating in that environment, and he prays, and he gets these visions from the Lord, and they trouble him. And so what does he do? He studies the Scripture. That's what he's doing in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 1. You'll notice that that's what... Look, look at verse 28. It says, And I, Daniel, I've fainted. This is chapter 8 and verse 28. And I, Daniel, fainted. I was sick for days. Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision. No one understood it. Daniel says, Man, I was troubled. I got up and I went about the king's business. I did what I was supposed to do. But in my heart, I was troubled. And it says that what Daniel did then was he meditated on his Bible. You know, this is a guy that a lot of people today would say, man, this dude is totally out of touch. you got problems going on all around you, and you're praying and reading your Bible. I mean, what in the world? I mean, it's real problems to fix here. And what are you doing? You're praying and reading your Bible. Yeah, I hear Christian people say all the time, well, yeah, I know you're going to tell us, you know, we need to do this and this and this today, but you're going to tell us to pray and read our Bibles. Well, that's what Daniel did in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king of the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified 
by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So Daniel is meditating on Jeremiah the prophet, and he reads that Jeremiah the prophet says, there's going to be a Babylonian captivity, but it's going to be 70 years. And so he recognizes, wait, we're coming to the end of that 70 years. And then Daniel forms this powerful prayer that God would do what he promised he would do. That's what happens in Daniel chapter 9. So when Daniel is troubled, Daniel gets in the Word, and he gets godly perspective on what's going on, and he gets on his knees. Now here's my question to you. You are troubled too, right? If you got sense, you're troubled. Maybe even you, look, you don't look at the nation because you've got so much personal trouble that you really haven't had time to worry about the nation and you're just struggling in your finances, or you're struggling physically, or you've got kids that are struggling, and so it breaks your heart, and you have trouble. Can I ask you this? When you have trouble, what do you do? Can I suggest, when you have trouble, it would be great to follow the pattern of a guy like Daniel, get in the Word, and get on your knees, right? Now, I would just say this, though. If you're not troubled about America, I'm concerned about you. Let's talk about this for a minute, like abortion, for instance. We should be troubled about an industry that makes money murdering innocent babies. That should trouble us. We're followers of Jesus Christ who protected little babies, who loves little babies. That should trouble us. We should be troubled that infants are not safe in America, and we call ourselves a great nation. We have our own version of a child sacrifice industry, and it's lucrative. It's going on all around us, and it's a money motive there. And you might be here today, and you may, in a weak moment, have done something unspeakably bad and allowed the life of your baby to be taken. But I'm here to tell you that there is mercy in God for every dark sin, but you will never be free from the guilt of that until you go to Jesus and acknowledge that it was wrong and allow him to mercifully forgive you and perhaps one day to be reunited with your child in heaven. This should trouble us that America is a nation that's sanitizing this abortion industry and making it look all like it's, like it's not evil and wicked like it is. We have poverty, injustice, prejudice, inequality in America. I heard, I heard John Piper say something interesting. John Piper is a real faithful pastor. The pastor's up in Minneapolis. And here's what he said. I thought this was really helpful. He, said, he says, I think it's interesting that you have the Right to Life Sunday, which is a, a Sunday in January, on one Sunday in January, and the next Sunday or the next Monday is the Martin Luther King holiday. You have many Christians that care about abortion, but they don't care about racial injustice. They turn a deaf ear to that, or they silently or, or quietly participate in it. I, I've, I've been around Christian people a long time. I know what I'm talking about, and if you're honest, you do too, that many people have prejudice against people of other races or other groups other colors of people, other kinds of God's created people. They have prejudice against them that they kind of keep quiet because it's not popular, right? But Jesus was from a despised race. Jesus was from a despised minority race himself. Jesus created every color of person and every kind of person all over the world and has love for every kind of person. For us to say that we are followers of Jesus Christ and that we love Jesus Christ, but that we hate some of his children is as inconsistent as you coming to me and saying you love me, but you hate my little girl. You can't say that. That's not true. Don't tell me you love Jesus and you don't care that there are people who as whole groups for many years have been systematically oppressed. It's just something that we have to be honest about. People who claim to be followers of Jesus, uh, Jesus who fed the poor, Jesus who defended the oppressed, 
They should be troubled when people are poor. They should be troubled when people are hungry. They should be troubled when people are unable to get education. They should be troubled when people are born into systems of poverty that are really hard to get out of. That should concern us. And we should act on that if we're followers of Jesus. We should be troubled about the anarchy in our nation. Jesus was a meek man who lived on earth under the authority of his father. Imagine that. The king of the universe coming to earth and living under the authority of his government, living under the authority of his father. Jesus was not an anarchist. He was the king of kings. He was the Lord of lords, and he still is today. And when anarchy in the streets of our nation, like what we have today, that should grieve us. That should not entertain us. That should break our hearts. When a nation descends into anarchy like we're doing now, and street and mob violence and looting and disrespect for authority are at the point where they are now, when public servants become targets, God help us. God alone can help us. When public servants are literally targets on the street, when a man or a woman that is going to come along and help you change your tires so you don't die or help you drive the speed limit so you don't kill somebody so that you can have a nice long life, when those people become targets of people on the street, how in the world can we not recognize that America is in serious trouble? This is the nation that we live in because we have turned our back on God as a people. We have growing anarchy and terrorism. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He's the God of order and beauty. Shouldn't we be troubled when little children aren't safe from terrorism in our school classrooms or or on our streets? And then there's this matter of how women are treated, oppression of women, perversion of the exalted role of women. That should trouble us. Abuse of women, the disrespect for women. If we say that we're followers of Jesus, men who are followers of Jesus should be, like Jesus, the most gentle, the most protective, the most concerned about the dignity of women. There's a widespread practice of pornography that many Christian men participate regularly in. The sexual trafficking that should trouble all of us. This should break our hearts. This should trouble us. And man, you might be a man or woman sitting here and you struggle with pornography. And I would just say this, if that's true about you, I, I hope your heart is broken. I hope you're deeply grieved about that. I hope you continually go back to God till he can, because he can deliver you from that. But there is this whole widespread abuse of women in our nation. And, and, and then how can we say we're not in trouble, right? Perversions abound in our society. When people struggle with sexual addictions, gender confusion, self-harm, deep depression, families are broken, so many children come home to fatherless homes, and women are put into positions that are difficult. People who are followers of the one who blessed children should be troubled by that. So we have a lot to be troubled by, am I right? We have a lot to be worried about. That's true. This should drive us to the Word. This should drive us to prayer. When Daniel was in trouble, it drove him to the Word of God in prayer. D.L. Moody said, every great movement of God can be traced to a kneeling figure. Maybe God allows afflictions to come to us so that we will stop trying to fix things on our own and get on our face before God and cry out for God to do what only God can do. Religious freedoms are under attack. That's an issue. Think about this. Back in Exodus, you read the book of Exodus, what did God say for Moses to tell Pharaoh over and over again, over and over and over again, let my people go? For what reason? What did he always say? It depends on the version of the Bible that you're reading, how, that was, how the word was interpreted. But it's like, let my people go so they can worship me. Let my people go so they can serve me. Over and over again, this is important to God. God says, my people need freedom so they can worship me. Now, they still worship him when they were under the oppressor. But God says, 
let my people go so they can worship me. America was founded, by and large, by people who came here not because... It was some had a a greedy ethic, of course, but many came to America because they were looking for a place where they can worship God in freedom. It's what America is about. And the Bible says that. That's one of the main reasons we pray for those who are in authority. That's one of the main reasons that we pray that people will be elected to public office who care about the things of God. Let me read this to you in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Therefore, I, this is 1 Timothy chapter 2. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks be made for all men. So he's, so Paul is telling Timothy, you know, you're going to run the church. You're going to be an elder. You're going to run the church. See to it that prayer is a priority. And he said to him, make sure that the prayers that are a priority to you are prayers for all those who are in authority. You might ask the question, then why would we pray for those who are in authority? So that they will, you know, is it so that they will have good economic policies, so that we'll have a lot of money? Well, it's not what it says here. For kings, for all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet, peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Get it? Let me just kind of boil that down to its essence. Why do we pray for those in authority? We pray for those in authority so that we have the freedom to do the only thing that will change men and women and nations, and that is so that we will have freedom to preach the gospel, which alone can transform people's lives. It's not the capitalistic system, or it's not the republic, republic, the system of the democratic republic. As wonderful as these things are that we love, it's only the gospel that can transform people inside out. And the reason that we pray for godly leaders is so that we have the freedom to worship God and we have the freedom to draw other people into the worship of God. So let's analyze just for a moment here then. Let's analyze this prayer of Daniel. So take your Bible and look at Daniel 9. You'll notice because of the time that I've taken to talk about this problem and to frame it, that we could not do justice to a really thorough and beautiful exegesis of Daniel chapter 9, which someday we'll return to, Lord willing, and we'll teach through the whole book of Daniel, and we'll take our time. But I want you to see, I mean, it's not hard to capture the heart of what Daniel's doing. And what I'm just trying to get across to us today is this. We're worried, right? We're troubled. If we got sense, we're troubled, right? If we love the Lord, we're troubled. If you watch the debates, you ought to be troubled. That ought to trouble you. If it doesn't trouble you, I'm worried about you. The breakdown of civility, the hatred, the ugliness, the lack of real conviction among people who are supposed to be the leaders of our land, that ought to drive every Christian to their knees. That ought to make us pray. And you, you know, but if we say, you know, there's a political fix for this. No, there isn't a political fix for this. There is not. You can say amen if you want to. There's no political fix for that. There's no, like, political tweaking that we can do. Once we are under the judgment of God, and God's favor has been lifted from us, we cannot arrange the deck chairs on the Titanic and hope that it won't sink. It's still going to sink, right? So what we ought to do is what God said, and, the, and, what, what, and what God said to do, first of all, was to turn to him. So you'll notice in Daniel, let me just show you some things that Daniel did. What should God's people do? I'm going to say, God's people should pray for awakening. Now, there are a number of things they should do, right? But the first thing I think that we should do is pray for an awakening. This means pray for a revival in America. If you're talking about America, pray for awakening, right? And so let's go into this. There's just a few things here that I want you to notice, highlights from Daniel's prayer. And you can study on your own. We may return to this. Number one is pray the will of God. Pray the will of God. Don't pray your will, what you want, what you think. But go to the Bible, figure out what God says, and claim the promises of God. Now that's what Daniel did. In, in, in Daniel chapter 9, uh, verse 1 and 2, this is what I just pointed out. 
he read the prophet Jeremiah that this captivity was going to come to an end. And then he said, Lord, let the captivity come to an end. Get it? We read the Bible today and we see there's going to be a rapture. We say, Lord, come and get us. Right? And before the rapture, wait a minute. If Jesus is going to come back this week, next week, then maybe it's time to go to the neighbor and get the gospel to the neighbor before it's too late. And they drop into hell forever. Right? Maybe it's time for one more appeal to our sister, our brother, our dad, our mom, our friend, the people. This should make missionaries out of us. We're praying, Jesus Christ, come back. Pray in the Word of God. When you conform your will to the Word of God, your prayers become powerful. The second thing is this, and that is give full attention to God. Look at verse 3. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications. Now, I pray in the shower. I pray driving. I pray walking. Uh, I, pray all, I pray riding my bike. The other day I was riding my bike. I was just praying away. I was just praying, pouring out my Lord <laughs> to, the, to the Lord, riding my bike. But there are times you need to get off your bike. And you need to get serious. Really, I mean, it's not that it's not serious, but you need to say, I'm going to fast. I'm going to set my face toward God. This is serious. Daniel was at the point where he goes, this is serious stuff. And so he was fasting. He set aside food. He set aside other stuff that he was doing. And he was a national leader. He was a powerful national leader. And he took time to get on his knees and, and not eat and pray. I would just say, number one, if you, if you want to pray for awakening in America, pray the word for America. And number two, pay attention to God. Give your total attention to God. Get serious. Be reverent. During troubled times, listen, during troubled times, fix your attention on God. That's what Daniel did. That's helpful stuff right there. We're in troubled times. It'd be easy for us to despair, scare the children, right? But like, what we ought to see is here's the trouble, and beyond the trouble is our sovereign and powerful God. Read Daniel chapter 9. God is in control. He raises up men and women, and he puts them down, but he's always in sovereign control. And so we keep our eyes on him. We pray with a Bible in one hand and with our eyes on God. That's what we must do. That's what Daniel did. He deserves our full attention. Some of us say, I want to get God's attention. I want to get God's attention. Like, God wants to get your attention. So what is it that grieves the heart of God? What is it that God wants? He says it in his word. We should pray more for what God wants than what we think he ought, uh, he ought to want because it's what we want, right? Did that make any sense to anybody? Yeah. So give your full attention to God. Here's the third thing in Daniel's prayer, 4 through 11 you see this, and it's confess sin by comparing yourself with God, not others. So when we compare ourselves to other people, then we always tend to compare ourselves with people who have flaws that we don't have, right? But if we really concentrate on the character of God and what God is like, then we'll be prepared to confess, right? We're prepared that, that if you want to be a leader in the church, I can tell you how to be a leader in the church. If you want to be a leader in your family, between you and your wife, either one of you can lead. Did you know that? Either one of you can lead. Among your peers, among your uh, siblings, how would you like to be the leader? I will tell you the simple way to be the leader. Jesus said this. This is from Jesus. He said, let them be the, the servant of all. Let them be last. Serve and be the first to confess your sin. Now you've led, right? The one who is quick to confess her sin, the one that's quick to confess his sin is the real leader, right? Because where does God want us to go? He wants us to go back to him in confession. Now, why is it that confession is so rare? Christians often want to kind of like placard. It's a little bit like the Westboro Baptist in a scale, right? These guys out there, they, they should never call themselves Baptists as a cult. And they got their signs and they're, 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 uh, they're protesting at the funerals of fallen American 
patriot hero soldiers, right? What a filthy thing to do. And a, call, and a calling out curses and saying God hates you and, and God hates people. And this is what? Christians do a little bit of that to a degree. We just placard against other people's sin. We don't understand other people's struggles. Well, the God, God wants us to have a prophetic voice, but he wants us to give a, an example of contrition and humility first. Show them what it looks like to confess your sin. The world needs to confess their sin. Of course they do. So they need to see the church, people who say they're following God, confessing their sin, not just being mad at them. The world really doesn't need us to just be mad at them. We do need to sound a prophetic voice. I'll talk about that in a minute or next week or whenever I talk again. But what we need to do is show them what repentance looks like. If you want to lead in your family, show them what repentance looks like. You want to lead your brothers and sisters, show them that. And this is in chapter uh, 9, verse 4. I pray to the Lord. I made confession. O Lord, great, awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him, with those who keep his commandments. We have sinned and committed iniquity. Notice Daniel is saying we. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets. We didn't listen, he says that spoke in your name to our kings and our princes and our fathers and the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you and to us shame of face, as it is this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off in the countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law, departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse, the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. Notice that Daniel did not say those bad people had sinned. He did not say that. He said, we, we, we. This is what the church needs to do. Confess your sin, comparing yourself to God and not others. You can't, you can't for other people confess their sin to God for them. You can acknowledge their sin and you can confess your sin. This is what Daniel did. This is how our prayers should be. And then we have a fourth thing that I notice here in the prayer. And that is, don't demand justice. Plead for mercy. Notice what Daniel does in chapter 9 and verse 12. And, and, it was, and, and he was confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges, who judge us by bringing upon us great disaster. For under the whole heaven, such has never been done what's been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. Yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand our truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. The Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name, as it is this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to your, all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because of your, our sins. And for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, 
Hear the prayer of your servant, his supplications. For the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear and open your eyes and see our desolations in the city, which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercy. Get it? Don't go before God and say, God, you owe me this. Don't ask God to give you what he owes you. Bad, bad idea. Ask God to, to show you his mercy. And this is what God said, plead for mercy. And then here's a fifth thing, and, that is, uh, and, and this is so helpful, I think, and so practical, and that is make the kingdom of God and the glory of God your main concern. Even restoring America to its previous glory or whatever that means is not the thing that should occupy the hearts of God's people. God's people's hearts should be occupied with the kingdom of God. God's people should care. They're citizens of the kingdom of God. Philippians 3.20, Our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly wait a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus, who by the power that enables to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they'll be like his glorious body. Therefore, our citizenship is in heaven. Now, American Christians should be the, the best American citizens. They should. But, our, but the best American citizen, Christian, is the one who has his or her heart firmly planted in their heavenly citizenship. And that should be our main thing. What are we praying for? We're praying for God to, to be glorified in any way he chooses to be glorified. And so let me suggest some different things quickly here. These, you can write them down quicker, take them off a tape or something. But let me suggest a handful of things that we should do. We just said pray like Daniel. Let me suggest a few more things quickly. Number one, what should we do along with this kind of praying? Or this kind of praying should lead us. Here's just some, a handful of things. One is raise up a big family, if God lets you, of Christ followers. Raise up a big family. Go ahead, write it down. Raise up a big family, if God lets you. Of, have children that follow God. And spread around the spread them around the world and teach them to go in God's name. You say, well, I can only have one or two. Oh, that's fine. Do what God lets you do. Pray that your kids will be fruitful. You know, this is why we have weddings and we, we throw rice and stuff. There's like symbols of we believe that fruitfulness. Everybody, every culture in the world understands that fruitfulness is a blessing from God. When we when our culture decided that children were not a blessing, we really begin to turn away from God. That was not wise. And and now we're we're being overpopulated by people who hate God. And so I would just say one thing to do is one thing that we try to do with our life is like raise up a bunch of kids and send them out to serve the Lord. Psalm 127, Psalm 128. And encourage other people to do the same. Whenever you see somebody have a baby, help them. Encourage them. Encourage them. If anybody's talking about having a baby, encourage them to have a baby. I'm on firm footing right there. Okay, I'll go on because you want me to go on. Okay, so another thing. Be a good citizen. Be a good citizen. Vote. The Bible says render unto Caesar. In America, we have the privilege of voting. And if you don't vote, you're a Christian and you don't vote, I don't think you're rendering unto Caesar. I think you should go vote. I just believe the Bible teaches that, that Christians should participate. My goodness, what if they took away your right to vote? You say, well, I don't even know who to vote for. I'm like, well, join the crowd. We go vote. You know, At least you have a voice and they see it. right? And to do what you can... Christians, go vote, participate. So if you're a member of this church or you're under the sound of my voice and you're saying, well, I don't know, America's so messed up, I'm not even going to vote, I would say, well, as a pastor, I would say to you, I don't think that's rendering under Caesar. I think you should go and pray that God will give you wisdom about, about the, and that you should vote what God inspired your conscience to vote. 
That, I believe that. Okay, and then, um, by the way, Tuesday we're going to Lansing, and there's a rally. Franklin Graham is going around America and having a rally in every uh, city, a capital in America. And we're taking a church bus up to Lansing, and you can come with us. I think we still have seats left. We're going to have a brunch on the way. We're going to have a prayer meeting there with Franklin Graham. Just, just a humble It's not a political rally for a, for a candidate. That's not the idea. It is just that we would go in, in a covenantal place on the capital of, of Michigan at Lansing and say to God, we humble ourselves before you. Some of you can't go because you're working. That's patriotic too. So stop at that time and pray. You can come to the church here. We'll have a little meeting here. You can pray at the church, but pray. Be good citizens, vote, participate, raise up kids to serve the Lord, do good works, do deeds of love and kindness, participate in the local church. The local church is God's hope in our time. It's God's present program. That's why we're jumping next week back into this discipleship strategy, simple church thing, and we're never going to stop talking about it because it's the main business. Nothing is more powerful than making disciples. This is what we're called to do. That nothing transforms lives but the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't vote somebody into office and transform their life. You can't do that, right? You can't legislate that. We should have legislation. We should have godly leaders. And the law of God has its different functions. It convicts the sinner, right? It, it, it restrains evil in society. And so we want the, when we don't have the law, we don't have sinners being convicted like they would. We don't have restraint in society. And Christians don't know how to live. So we should pray that we have law and laws. That's important. But understand, if the, if the country descends into lawlessness, God is still on his throne. And the gospel is still powerful. And so we, we should be a prophetic voice. I'm on the street in Oregon, and I just took a long walk on the beach. And it was after one of these debates, debacle, uh, debates. Um, and, uh, and, and I thought, what a, what a train wreck of a debate. You know, they're like, my, ma- my mama would have washed my mouth out with soap if I said some of the stuff that the presidential candidates were saying. Your mama, if she was a good lady, would have done the same thing, right? And, and so I'm sitting on the street, and a guy walks up to me and goes, what do you think about Donald Trump? says to me, what do you think about that? You know, and he's like, you know, he's kind of gung-ho for one or the other, and, you know, I don't remember which one. But he says that. So I'm sitting there, and, uh, and, I'm, and I'm just trying to drink a cup of coffee. You know, I took a walk, and I'm drinking a cup of coffee, and this guy comes up, and I'm like, you do not want to know what I think. You do not want to know. And so he's like, you're a nice guy, you know. So he's just kind of pressing me like, well, you know, I watch this. And what do you think about that? And so I just told him. I said, well, you know, if you, you, since you asked, you know, yeah, repeatedly, um, here's what I believe. I believe the reason that you have people like that that are running for public office in America that are not godly people is because America is under God's judgment. And we're not going to have really godly statesmen-like people to pick from because we've rejected God. You know, some Christians are going to say, vote for the lesser of two evils, and others are going to say, I'm going to have my, my vote register someplace else, and you've got to figure that out on your own, right? You don't come to church to ask me to tell you that. You don't need me to tell you that. But I will tell you this. What we do need to do is what I did on the street with that man, that is be a prophetic voice. I was nice, I was kind, but I basically got to the gospel with him. A prophetic voice is another way of saying, Christians should not just give the gospel, but they should also graciously teach the law. And so we should say what God says, and we shouldn't be ashamed. It doesn't mean that we're going to be hateful and that we're, going to, we're out, you know, kind of like shouting in people's faces and getting ugly with them. I don't think that's appropriate. Uh, that's not what Jesus did. But he cried out against sin, and he was direct, and so we should be a prophetic voice. That's another thing. You should know your Bible prophecy, right? Know your, what's amazing to me is in the churches, it's interesting that a lot of people are not teaching Bible prophecy now. It, it, 
it's not hip or something. I don't know why. But like, well, wait a minute. Aren't we closer to the return of Christ than we were? You say, well, I'm not sure how he returns and what the scheme. Okay, fine. But aren't we closer? Right? We're closer. Like whatever you think it is, we're closer. Jesus is coming back. So should we be like charged up about that? You know, if I'm coming home, I want my kids to go, hey, it's almost time. Dad's almost home. You know, he's going to be here. It's going to be great. That's not the way it is. But, you know, that's what I like to think. And that's the way. When Jesus is coming back, what a wonderful thing. And God's people should be like, Daniel, what does the word say about this? That we should, be, we should be into prophecy. And then we should flee to the ark. By the way, understand this. Only the gospel can transform people, right? So think about the, 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 uh, the, col- the Roman Colosseum was about half the size of a big house. Not quite that big, all right? So you imagine like 50,000 people there. And now you've got Christians and they're, they're, they're either, they're ma- they, they kill them and torture them with lions or with gladiators making sport. They're very weak, right? And the catacombs under the street, they, the Christians go to hide, to worship the hide because their lives are in danger. So there is no chance at all that those Christians are going to have any power or any influence in the world, right? Wrong. Because the Christian message from Rome went all over the world. And we're here right now because nobody can stop the power of the church, of Jesus Christ, or the good news of the gospel. But they'll stop your political candidate. I don't care who he is or she, right? They'll stop them, but they won't stop Jesus, all right? So there, and, and, and then prepare, uh, prepare an ark, point of the ark of safety for salvation for you and everybody you know and get everybody you know saved, right? That's, and then a final thing is this, and that is prepare to suffer faithfully because that's what we're probably going to be called to do. And we're not used to that. We're used to watching Christians in other parts of the world do that, kind of from a distance, and praying about it occasionally, right? But what if God says, just like, you know, you got one person on your pew that gets to be old and the other person that gets cancer, right? I mean, right here in the church, it's over and over again. Why was that? Because the person that got cancer is the bad person? Well, we kind of know better than that, right? Not so. God's going to call some of us to suffer. God's going to call us to suffer as a nation sometimes, as people. God's people may have to suffer. It may be that we get to be at a time when we need to be prepared to suffer faithfully for God. Up at Camp Erichel, I love to go up there, you know that, and speak every once in a while. We were up there for a conference this, this uh, fall, and the director of the camp got up, and uh, he said it's an anniversary day. It was kind of a cool day. It was, I forget what he said, but he said it was, like, I think it was 40 years ago this weekend that there was a big forest fire up there. Now, the camp is in the middle of the Huron National Forest, and, and, the, and the prevailing wind you know, was coming from the west. And it was blowing the fire all the way from Grayling, all the way across that forest, and it was roar is racing toward the camp property, which is only 300 acres, and that fire would have raced across that camp property, would have burned all that camp, would have burned all those buildings and chapels, and the dining hall would have completely destroyed that camp. And that fire was coming so hot and so fast that people said there's no way they can stop it, and they did what they could, but they couldn't stop the fire. And they began to pray, and there's a big, long story behind this written in an interesting book. They, they begin to pray. And today, if you were to go to Camp Barakel, it's still there, right? If you were going to Camp Barakel and you were to go to the West Side Chapel and you were walking to the back of the West Side Chapel and you were to look on the wall, you know what you would see? You would see a ma- an aerial view of the camp. And you would see that the forest west of the camp is completely burned to the ground. 
And you would see that there's a line along the west side of the camp. It's as clear as it can be. And you will see on the other side of the line, nothing was burned. God heard the prayers of God's people and turned the fire away and spared the camp. And we ought to pray that for our nation, for our once great, beautiful America that we love. We ought to pray, God, please spare this nation from your judgment. We're your people. We know enough to pray. We're going to get on our knees. We're going to open our Bibles. We're going to vote our conscience. We're going to do what we can. We're going to do good works. We're going to raise our families for God. Nothing will discourage us. But God, would you do what we can't do? And would you turn the judgment away from our nation? Would you turn the judgment away from ourselves, from our church, from our families, even in a time of judgment? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we're grateful to you that we have been able to most of us be raised in this great land of America that we love so much. It's so beautiful and so blessed. But we want to be people like Daniel that are faithful and fervent and frequent in our prayers. Unite us as a church, as God-fearing, praying people who believe that the Bible is true. And I pray that you would use us in this sense that, that your kingdom would just go on in power and that the expression of your kingdom in America would be very powerful. The expression of your kingdom in Taylor would be powerful. The expression of your kingdom in this church would be powerful. The expression of your kingdom in our lives and families would be powerful. That you would use us, Lord, to build your spiritual kingdom until you come back one day and you physically reign on the earth. Amen. Be, uh, stay-